Good evening, folks. Uh, my name is Rodolfo uh, Torres. I'm a faculty member for Latino Metropolis. Um, this is our last class meeting uh, in the fall 2011. And uh, this is a very special evening. We have a guest speaker, Tom Hayden. And uh, we'll have a, a formal introduction in, in a minute. Uh, I'd just like to make a couple of announcements. One, the paper is due tonight. Um, stack, you can hand it to me, or Alfredo, or stack it here on the side. Your paper, yes, too. What's it, eight, eight pages? 15 pages. <laughs> 30 pages? Uh, please uh, find a seat. In this era of growing inequality, you have to excuse my voice, I'm going to suggest it and stick with the flu. Um, you know, there's a, a lot of interest in alternatives to the current social and economic order. And one doesn't have to you know, create these critiques um, in a library or in a classroom, but just read back 30 to 40 years ago when Tom Hayden, our guest speaker, wrote about these issues of inequality and poverty, uh, social justice, social movements. And he wrote as an activist, uh, as a politician, elected political uh, politician. Um, just have a seat anywhere. There's a few seats up here. I've asked uh, Tom to, well, we've asked Alfredo and I have asked Tom to give a 30-minute sort of overview of, 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 of uh, the crisis of American capitalism and uh, as he sees it, and then we'll have an open uh, conversation uh, to conclude the, the evening. On that note, I'd like to introduce uh, Alfredo. Thank you. My job is to My job is to introduce uh, a very, what I consider a very important uh, person in American politics. Um, you know, I remember reading about him when I was working on my master's at Cal State Long Beach, and so it's, it's kind of, in a very, it's, I'm very honored and very privileged to, to be here and to introduce uh, Tom. Um, after over 50 years of activism, politics, and writing, Tom is still a leading voice for social, environmental, and economic justice, as well as reforming politics through a more participatory democracy. Um, Tom was a student, for some of you that may or may not know, Tom was a student editor at the University of Michigan and um, a founding member of the Students for a Democratic Society in 1961. Um, he was also a principal the, the principal author of its visionary um, statement, the Port Huron Statement. Which, which is available here. Which is available here. And uh, he, Tom is selling... Student rights. Student rights. Yep. Tom is selling some of his books after, after the, the presentation. Um, and it was described by Howard Zinn as one of those historic documents which represents an era. He was a free freedom writer in the Deep South. He was arrested and beaten um, in rural Georgia and Mississippi in the early 60s. He became a door-knocking community organizer, or organizer in Newark, uh, Newark Center City in 1964, part of an effort to create a national poor people's campaign for jobs and empowerment. Um, when the Vietnam War invaded American lives, uh, Tom became an increasing 
increasingly active opponent through teaching, demonstrations, writing, and making one of the first trips to Hano Hanoi in 1965 to meet the other side and promote peace talks, journalistic <coughs> contacts, and American POW releases. After helping lead demonstrations against the war in 1968, after, at the 1968 Chicago Democratic Convention, where he was beaten, gassed, and arrested twice, he was indicted in 1969 with seven others on conspiracy and incitement charges. There's also a book on that that you can pick up if, uh, if you are interested in reading about that. Um, 50 cents. After five years of trials, appeals, and retrials, he was acquitted of all charges. After the political system um, opened up in the 70s, Tom organized a grassroots campaign for economic democracy in California, <coughs> which won dozens of local offices and shut down the nuclear power plant through a referendum for the first time. The organization led the campaign for Proposition 55 in 1986, uh, requiring labels on cancer-causing products and Proposition 99, tripling tobacco taxes uh, to fund billing for public health and anti-tobacco initiatives. He was elected to the California State Assembly in 1987 <coughs> and the Senate 10 years later, serving 18 years in all, chairing two committees on the environment, higher education, and labor. He ran as a pro-choice candidate several other times, resulting in a one-loss record of seven to four. He also served uh, twice on the Democratic Party's National Platform Committee. Altogether, he has attended 10 Democratic National Conventions six times as a delegate. Um, in 1996 and 2000, he was elected as a delegate by the largest caucus vote in, in California. Despite serving under Republican governors for 16 of 18 years and twice subjected to Republican-led expulsion hearings, Tom managed to pass over uh, 100 measures in his time in office. For these and other efforts, Tom was named Legislator of the Year or given similar recognitions by university and community college student lobbies, the League of Conservative Voters, and the Sierra Club, the Rainforest Action Network, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the Association of Salvadorans in LA, the American Lung Association, POPAC, which is an animal welfare um, organization, the California Public Interest Research Group, CalPERG, the Irish American uh, Community Conference, and the Liberty Hill Foundation. Nicholas Lehman of the Atlantic writes that Tom, has Tom Hayden has changed America. According to former presidential advisor Richard Goodwin, who created the blueprint for a great society program. He was the single greatest figure of the 1960s hippie movement, according to the New York Times Book Review. During his time in Sacramento, he was described as a conscience of the Senate by the Sacramento Bee political analyst. The Nation magazine recently named him one of the 50 greatest progressives of the 20th century. For all of this, Tom described himself as an archaeological dig. Um, exactly. He's, uh, he's participated in over you know, 50 years of uh, you know, uh, American history. This coming year marks the 50th anniversary of the Port Huron Statement, the foundational document of Students for a Democratic Society, which I mentioned he helped found. The anniversary comes at a time of renewed interest in student-led democracy movements around the world. The Occupy Wall Street movements, and the UC student-led Occupy UC um, and also refund education <coughs> movements even invoke the particip uh, participatory democracy in their manifestos and in practice. People over the, the, the country, people all over the country are challenging the system by following in the footsteps of people like Tom, <coughs> people who fought for a true democracy, democracy not just in, in elections um, or on election day, but also in the streets, in places we work, in places we learn, in places we live. Tom Hayden has dedicated his life to social and economic justice <coughs> all the while advocating principles of economic democracy. 50 years ago, he and other students called for a more democratic society. Today, in the midst of an economic recession like one not seen since the Great Depression, 
We should heed his example and move beyond just occupying public spaces toward democratizing workplaces, healthcare, communities, schools, including our own universities. 35 years after he worked tirelessly campaigning for economic democracy, we should continue that work, the work of democratizing the economy so that it focuses on people rather than profit. Ladies and gentlemen, Tom Hayden. And, and move around, and uh, please uh, interrupt with questions <coughs> uh, anytime that uh, that you wish. Um, as I, I sort of jokingly said uh, earlier, I, I feel like an archaeological dig because I you can go to any decade of the past five, and we we can start there. Uh, it's kind of like looking underground in Mexico City at previous civilizations that I've lived in. And, and uh, on the other hand, uh, you must know, please, <coughs> that I'm an everyday human being living right now worried about whether I should buy my 11-year-old son a, a BB gun by Friday. <laughs> and, and I have to have an operation the same day. And, I spend all my time uh, reading, researching, uh, and trying to end certain injustices where I think I can lend a hand, basically. Uh, and for the past 10 years, which is three or 4,000 straight days, I've been working to uh, end the war in uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and beyond, and deal with their adverse consequences, including uh, uh, the treatment of the uh, so-called Irvine 11 on this campus who caught up in the uh, war on terrorism paradigm, shall we speak. Uh, you may ask, well, how's that going, Tom, 10 years, 4,000 straight days? I'm, I'm a long-distance man. Um, it's For me, it's, it's like uh, the practice of religion. If you spend all your time uh, listening and focusing on the same thing, uh, it's, it's a worthy way to live a life, and it's also the, uh, it, 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 it's important to me to say at the outset that um, history is open and it's not fixed, and so I can't really answer the question how it's going. If you had told me how it was going with uh, Mississippi uh, 50 years ago, I would not say 50 years from now the voters of Mississippi will refuse to call a fertilized egg a human being. In, in, a, in a, a, a blow against the anti-abortion movement, it's unthinkable. Certain things happen that are surprises, history being the big surprise. Uh, so, let me say one other thing, just to, uh, uh, as background. I view all, the, all this experience as the resource that I can share with you, but my experience has taught me that there are always surprises, and I don't want to be 
limited by my experience. I don't want to be a prisoner of my experience. I don't want you to think, because I say I know this from experience, that it limits and circumscribes what you might be able to create through your own experience. That is, um, experience is living, experience is kinetic, experience is not the past, it's the present and the future. Uh, uh, my, my method is that of a community organizer and a journalist. Um, what you learn in community organizing and in journalism, and for that matter, practice of liberation theology and other practices is listening is as important or more important than speaking because um, if you seek to be grounded in a social movement, it has to come out of the experiences of people uh, uh, and, and you're uh, a catalytic agent or a therapeutic agent, you're a listener and, and in the listening, you might formulate in a helpful way something that will help people do what they're probably going to do anyway, with you or without you. Um, so I, I was asked to say a word about economic democracy. Uh, it's, um, it's not the greatest phrase. Um, <coughs> But sometimes uh, phrases have resonance. How many of you have heard of participatory democracy? None, some. So when I was a graduate student, a professor named Arnold Kaufman uh, at the University of Michigan told us about John Dewey, the old uh, uh, philosopher, who believed in a participatory democracy, uh, which we were told meant that voting was important, but that participation in everything was the most important thing. Uh, participation in your community, participation in your university, in your classroom, in your workplace, the idea of having a voice and a participatory role in everything was the ideal of democracy. It was not limited to voting or electoral politics. And we learned also from Professor Kaufman that this went way back. I'm not going to start with the Greeks. And, but for instance, Henry David Thoreau, uh, in a time when very few people could vote, uh, said something that had lasting resonance, which was, vote with your whole life and not merely with a strip of paper. Uh, so the concept of participatory democracy has been around in various forms. And it's a very clunky phrase. I can't even believe I'm using it. But um, I see in the manifesto of Occupy Wall Street uh, that was written just a month ago, uh, they, de they, they declare themselves to be believers and practitioners in participatory democracy, a phrase that was introduced in the early 60s in the SDS uh, Port Huron Statement that came from a classroom discussion among people like yourselves trying to understand what we stood for. Uh, and from the idea of participatory democracy, we can see a distinction, it's very simple, between, uh, and it's not a contradiction, it's a distinction between participatory democracy and representative democracy. And I think you already know the difference. 
what you're taught and conditioned to believe in is voting for people who then act on your behalf. Uh, for all sorts of reasons, they represent you. Uh, and the, the, the problems with that uh, are recurrent. If they really represented you, you would not feel so alienated. But they also represent money. They represent other constituencies. Their real job as a representative is to sort out the conflicts and come up with they th what they think is a stabilizing compromise solution so that we all move forward. And that's inadequate uh, 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 because it limits you to the fairly passive role of casting a vote and taking your chances. So participatory democracy gets introduced as an alternative to or a complement to the representative form of government. In California, for example, we have initiatives and referendums and recalls. Um, outside the political process, we have <coughs> direct democracy uh, practiced, for example, now by the occupiers. And the occupiers are not a new phenomenon. Uh, we occupied lunch counters in 1960. We occupied factories in my state of Michigan in the 1930s. Occupation is, is, a, is a form of direct um, civil disobedience and participation. Uh, and, and, and sometimes these forms of action uh, interact with each other. Sometimes they collide. Sometimes it takes an occupation uh, to wake up a desire to participate more fully, and sometimes that awakens the conscience, uh, or if not the conscience, the instinct of the politician to act on behalf of the uh, occupation or the, or the protest. So I'm not here to say um, there's one way, inside or outside, or uh, uh, to, to give a rank order of importance, but to say that Participatory democracy is very powerful, and economic democracy is nothing but the extension of political participation to the economy. Whether you want to occupy or participate is, is, a, is another question. But uh, we realized very early, and again, I'm saying this from experience as the, the great teacher, uh, that in sacrificing so many uh, lives and so much energy to obtain the right to vote in the South, in the Deep South, in that experience it became apparent that people also had to have something to vote for that would get them jobs. You may not know this, but you do know of the 1963 march. You probably know that it was in Washington, 250,000 people. Dr. King gave a speech that entered the history books of, that all students are, are taught. Uh, but you may not know that the slogan of that march was jobs and justice. <laughs> we were already past the idea of voting rights, even though we hadn't achieved the voting rights quite could see that on the horizon. That was going to happen. Uh, but it was about jobs and justice because the political right to participate 
would mean little if you couldn't participate in directing economic resources to your community, to your school, to your neighborhood, to your housing, and so on. Uh, and above all, if you couldn't create a full employment economy. So it was intertwined, this idea of political democracy, participatory democracy, and economic democracy. And, and the phrase uh, uh, comes and goes. Some people think economic democracy is another word for socialism. I don't think that that's true, except among socialists who don't want to say they're socialists, if there are any. Uh, I think economic democracy is a broader concept, and uh, it, 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 uh, it encompasses neighborhood businesses, uh, publicly regulated businesses, publicly owned businesses, community banks. It does not exclude entrepreneurial activity uh, by any means. It simply points out the obvious that it's, it's, it's weird to have a political democracy in which voters have no say over the economy, except through uh, people they elect in elections that are dominated by the money from private businesses, right? So the, uh, the idea is a flexible idea, uh, but I'll give you a couple of examples uh, through uh, stories. In, um, sometime in the 1980s during the Carter administration, <clears throat> I had the opportunity to go to a, I think it was a solar energy conference at the White House. This was a, at a time when solar energy was sort of farther ahead then than it is now. I, I was the chairman of the state of California's Solar Energy Council. Uh, we thought it, it was the jobs of the future. Green, green jobs. We had 1,700 private solar businesses hiring 23,000 people in California alone. We were, we were reworking the tax structure and the utility incentive structures. We are going to do this under the direction of the coordination of Jerry Brown as governor and uh, uh, a lot of people in the environmental movement. And so we were at this White House meeting. That's the background. But I had the opportunity for a meeting with uh, the president, the first meeting, in, probably the only meeting I'll ever have with the president of the United States in <laughs> the Oval Office, as far as I know. So I thought I, I really better come prepared, and because uh, you might get one minute, might get an hour. Uh, it was somewhere in between. But I, I, uh, I, I said this to him. I said, I said, Mr. President, pardon me for. Uh, uh, speaking so directly, but it's the only chance that I'll have. And I wanted you to tell me the answer to a question I'm really, really uh, uh, perplexed about. Um, it seems to me that the elected president of the United States, yourself, is less powerful than the unelected heads of big corporations. Is that true? Am I, is, is, is that worry something that's real? And he, you know what he said to me, Jimmy Carter? This is why I probably didn't get reelected. He said too many things. <laughs> he said, I learned that in my first year in office. There you go. I walked out 
It's one of those lights flashing in my head that has never turned off. Um, fast forward to immediately after the Obama election, 2008, I, I was not present, but I know of a meeting that was held between David Plouffe, the campaign manager, and a, a number of Harvard University economists about what the economic program was going to be and who the appointees were. I don't need to remind you probably that this is just after the complete collapse of the economy and Wall Street, <coughs> the election of a president who had not even run on those issues. Uh, and, and so it was a, a big question, are you, are you gonna uh, keep power in the hands of the Wall Street people with all their sophistication who have just managed to wreck the economy uh, but are among the only people that seem to know how to run these giant institutions. What are you going to do? And are your policies going to be more Keynesian, more public intervention, more market-oriented? What, what, what are you going to do? So David Plouffe went to Harvard, and he briefed these Harvard people who were not the Larry Summers people. Larry Summers would be on the corporate side of that spectrum, who would become you know, Treasury Secretary, as you know. <coughs> and David Pluth laid down the line. It, as I heard it secondhand, the line was this. You guys have to back off. Uh, we cannot have a big government liberal approach to this. There will be a capital strike. That is, if you shake up the investor class they will move to London. They don't have to be on Wall Street. You can go occupy some foreign country, but this is a global economy. And if you put too much pressure on these people, th they can go offshore too. Banks, insurance companies, law firms, they don't have to be here. So it, it was extremely important, this message, that whatever uh, we think Ideologically, we have to be very careful uh, uh, because if we go too far too fast, Wall Street will come at us and they have the power. It's the same message delivered differently as, as the message that Jimmy Carter answered. So it is, it is uh, from experience, I know that we don't really know what will happen because it's partly up to us, but um, there's a consistent thread here of political democracy being, being inadequate to really bringing the private banking and corporate economy under uh, accountability, disclosure, uh, uh, standards, um, anti-sweatshop provisions, recognition of uh, labor rights, all the, the rest of it. Very difficult, and even when things are achieved, um, as they were in the 1930s, there's a constant pressure to roll back the achievements and, and weaken them so that suddenly the 40-hour week becomes a 60-hour week. You know the story. Um, so that, that's the message. So I, I think this is a this is a problem that the 60s did not resolve. It was not outside of our aspiration 
it was outside of our capacity. And that's the issue. That is, uh, I think we have a democratic deficit. Uh, and, and, and it's a very serious issue as your generation goes forward uh, because you can't really seriously expect the Wall Street people to solve the problem of economic inequality or even address it. But if elected people, from the president to the senate to the rest of them, and civic society don't have the power to make them address it, I think we're on a crash course. Neither side can win by any definition that we can propose of, of what victory would look like. Oh, they can sweep the people out of their tents in Los Angeles tonight, but the problem grows. And, 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 and we, can we can put up fierce resistance and occasionally stop them in their tracks, but the problem grows. So maybe the answer is that um, the growth of the problem will produce um, new dynamics that are even beyond what we uh, can now imagine. I don't know. Um, I really don't. But um, economic democracy may be a bad phrase, but it's as, as appropriate a concept as I can imagine for trying to deal with the problem of economic inequality and unemployment in a global economy. I can't imagine uh, any better topic. Uh, it may be phrased differently, uh, but what is the alternative? What, what do you guys think? What, what is the alternative? Yeah, if, you, if, it, if, if Wall Street has bankrupted itself through deregulation, why would they be able to put us on an even keel and increase hope, opportunity, jobs, and income? It's not going to happen. And, and if government doesn't have the power to make it happen, uh, everybody on their own? I'll tell you what, what, what I know, and then I'll give you a little theory. Um, my, my grandma... We, we called her uh, Nani, uh, lived in Oconomowoc, Wisconsin in uh, the 20s and the 30s. And she was married to a man who died in a cannery accident before there was uh, workers' insurance or compensation. A carnation company in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He was killed by, uh, an, industrial, uh, by, by an industrial machine. And uh, this was in the early 30s, so she raised 12 kids, including my mom, uh, with no pension and no um, uh, insurance. She got a $5,000 settlement from the company, uh, and that was it. And as, as, as the story came down to me when I was a little boy, at first what they did was nothing from 1930. 
except double up. If you had to have five to a room instead of two, that's what you did. If you had to have some second and third little job selling stuff, that's what you did. And you brought that home and you pooled your money to try to pay your bills. That's what you did. And the idea of doing more was, was um, there wasn't enough time in the day or energy to do more than that. And you certainly didn't take risks that would, that would put you closer to the abyss, complete hell. Uh, it really wasn't until uh, the middle 30s that uh, out of a sense of hopelessness combined with necessity, people started to act. Just as Occupy today may be not the not the end all, but the end of the beginning of something vast. Um, I think these things come in waves and they come chaotically. They come like uh, storms that at first you think it might be showers and then later it's big rains or it comes like a tremor and you think that was a 4.2. And then all of a sudden, it's an 8.1. That's the difference between the early 30s and the late 30s. And the things that were uh, achieved in the 30s uh, came chaotically. Uh, I think in classes, you can um, often get the impression that the New Deal was a package. It was not. It was a slogan like hope. It was a slogan by a presidential candidate that remained to be filled in. What was the New Deal? All people knew was that it was supposed to be a better deal than they had. And yet the list is very long. The Wagner Act, collective bargaining, social security, and each one of the things on the list of 10 or 20 uh, reforms came at a price. Um, uh, farm labor, farm workers, uh, uh, black, Mexican, Filipino, they had to be excluded from the National Labor Relations Act uh, so that industrial workers who were more unionized could get collective bargaining. And somebody had to make that deal. Somebody had to say, we have to do this. We, we, we lose the southern racist wing of the Democratic Party if we don't do this deal. And if we lose the southern racist wing of the Democratic Party, the Republicans will take over. And you know Hoover. You know what that was about. That's what happened. Somebody had to sit at a table and say, Social Security for some, but don't go too fast. Somebody <coughs> had to say, put off health care. Do not include health care in the Social Security bill because we will lose the conservatives that we need in order to get something. And something is big. But even big things <coughs> leave human beings out of the equation. They get left by the side. Um, I remember hearing Barack Obama once comment on this. He said, um, he wasn't there obviously, but he, he commented on history and he said, you know, 
The United States of America was founded on a compromise in which my people were left out. And he's saying this as president. He said, do you understand what it means to come a long way? Do you understand what it means to follow the North Star? So, the, the Roosevelt was considered like Lincoln then, before, and Obama today to be a wobbling centrist, pushed very hard from the left, pushed very hard from the right, from fascists. You know, Henry Ford was trying to fund an American Nazi party that my priest, Father Coughlin, was the foremost uh, uh, right-wing preacher of his time, and he was the predecessor for all of the radio preachers of the far right today, that he invented radio preaching, and that he had to be shut up by the Vatican because he was too pro-German. There were very, very powerful right-wing forces that we know of as the Tea Party today. There were very powerful left forces, more powerful than we see today in, in an organizational sense, but I dare say there's as many on the left today as there were then, but less well, maybe less well organized. And, and they all thought Roosevelt was either a Marxist-Leninist who was becoming, creating a Soviet America, or um, he was a fink and a sellout uh, who was, who was going to stabilize capitalism and leave the workers behind. <coughs> Very few people uh, were in, in the pragmatic middle, because even the pragmatic middle was considered too, too controversial. And, and fewer still were willing to take responsibility for doing the deals that became the New Deal because the deal meant you had to leave some people out. And, and, and that was a great era as we look back on it, um, kind of rosy <coughs> tint. Um, and, and I wonder if we'll look back on, on this era in the same way, I don't know. But I have to tell you something, the New Deal which was a big threat to the economic system, still did not end unemployment. It was 10 or 20% going into World War II. World War II ended unemployment. What the, what the New Deal did was give labor a very important organizing rights and give the elderly and the sick and the disabled extreme, extremely important social pensions and, and some kind of... Uh, uh, social safety net that they didn't have before. But the failure of the, the economy in the 30s to create enough jobs was never resolved. It was lessened. It was lessened significantly, but it was not resolved until World War II. So I, I don't know uh, how much change is possible, is what I'm saying. You don't know until you put your shoulder to the wheel, but it's very difficult to uh, uh, to, to work in this kind of environment uh, because I think people want certainty. 
what, what I can do is suggest to you um, a, a simple organizer's uh, theory of history. Um, not academic, um, not based on class and status or global dynamics, but based only on one thing. How does social change get achieved in America? What, what are the keys to it? And it go, it's very simple, and I'll just end with it. Imagine, um, imagine this. Um, instead of thinking of class struggles or good versus evil or those dichotomies, think of only two things from a practical point of view. One, social movements. Two, the Machiavellian powers that want to stop social movements. Everything else is background. Social movements turn the wheel, and the Machiavellians try to stop the wheel from turning. Uh, a social movement is um, an unexpected <coughs> assembly of people from the margins who have enough concentrated force of numbers and uh, enough uh, uh, strength of ideals and willingness to sacrifice to enter history, to make themselves go from invisible on the margins to visibility. A Machiavellian, you know what a Machiavellian is, you probably studied in high school. Machiavelli is really a complicated <laughs> figure, but Machiavellianism is the little book, The Prince, which some of you may have read. And it puts forward this following theory that politics is, follows a different law than ethics. The purpose of politics is to secure the prince, the incumbent, and protect the prince's reputation and expand the prince's resources. Machiavelli was the advisor to the incumbent. And this, 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 added, this is followed today even though we now have elections. This was written at a time of monarchs and popes running things. No elections, none. This, th this, this is what Machiavelli is. So here's how it goes. The movement is always begins unexpectedly, like Occupy did. Nobody, here's what happened. Adbusters magazine in, in uh, Vancouver publishes a silly magazine of, for culture jammers, and it has a thing, uh, Arab Spring will be followed by American Autumn, and it, a call to action that says September 17th, bring tents. That's it. Not exactly the Communist Manifesto. <laughs> bring tents. That's it. Somehow this circulates, uh, and on September 17th, a handful of people show up, and the handful somehow grows, and now you have the Occupy phenomenon. It, it, this is like the sit-ins. There's, there's a magical mystery uh, tour at the beginning of a social movement that no one has ever pinned down or explained. Uh, but the Machiavellians don't see it. Their goal at this time is to keep the order and keep complete hegemony over the order. And uh, they are, because of their elite role, they can't see what's out in the darkness. They think they see everything, but by, because they're discriminatory people, they think there are lesser people. So they always miss, always miss 
what the lesser people are about to do. If they were more egalitarian, they wouldn't be Machiavellian, but they would be more able to see that there are no lessers necessarily in any situation. So they miss it. Uh, and it erupts at the margins. It, it passes through a moment of trial where it could be the, the Montgomery bus boycott or a mass arrest or a massacre that has to be experienced. Um, and, and, and it comes to public attention because of this moment. And if the, if the emerging mo movement is based on any past um, memory, it resonates with a, a, a somewhat larger group of people. That's why so many emerging <coughs> movements use phrases from the Bible or from the Declaration of Independence or something in the cultural history that they claim should be theirs, right? And that touches other people who say, well, that's fair. These are the, the undecideds. And so it grows until it reaches mainstream proportions. By mainstream, I mean a political science concept like 10%, 20%, 30%, you figure. Enough people believe it or support it that it becomes a factor. At this point, the movement starts to divide and the Machiavellians start to divide into pragmatic versus radical tendencies or militant versus moderate. On the movement side, the, uh, the, the movement starts by saying we want the right to vote and then quickly says, but, but uh, we want to vote on everything. Or we want the right to eat at the lunch counter. Um, and then they move to, we, we want to uh, uh, break down private property. Or uh, we, you know, we want to have Earth Day, and then all of a sudden, you know, we want to stop the coal industry. It, it, it grows <clears throat> from uh, stages. And it's inevitable that people in a movement will become dissatisfied with their original goals is what I'm trying to say, as they grow. And, and the others in the movement will be the future politicians. Not looking at anybody here. Uh, people like me, who are more pragmatic, who want the revolution to succeed at least in bits. Let's win what we can. And above all, let's not stray from our original goal. If we said we want to desegregate lunch counters, let's not now say, you know, we want to do something on a grant. Let's make sure we get something, right? Pragmatic. On, on, the, on the Machiavellian side, same thing happens. The Machiavellians see there's a real danger here. This movement is growing, and it threatens our complete control of everything, our complete hegemony, our complete authority. And by the way, some of the things these movement activists are demanding are fair. Like, why can't women vote? Think about it, guys. I'm giving you a debate that went on 150 years ago. What, what's wrong with this? And so the Machiavellians, for, for their own reasons, which are to remain in power, divide into one group that is prepared to concede reforms to restore order, 
or they've been persuaded. It's not, it's not that much of a threat. And another group who believes that if you, if you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. You can't let the movement have any success because then they'll want more, right? So quash them and keep quashing them. Get out the pepper spray. Do what is necessary so that they never come back. You teach them a lesson. You teach them fear. They stay put. So now you're in the mainstream, and you can't avoid politics now. It's not. This is a silly argument. Should you be involved in politics? Politics is going to be involved in you. Some politicians are going to notice you and run against you because it's good for their Machiavellian reason. Some politicians are going to notice you and, and say, I'm on their side because it's good for their Machiavellian reason. They're going to get votes. Most politicians are going to say, I support some of their objectives, and they'll come up with a compromised version, a watered-down version of what you want. But politics gets activated once you get enough people sympathetic. It's, it's inevitable. It's not a debatable, should we or shouldn't we be involved in politics. It's how should we respond when politics gets involved in us. Then you get from the mainstream to a majority. At some point, um, a, a, a majority of people are in favor of the original reform. They're not going to go sit in a tent. They're not going to get gassed, but they're in favor. At this point, it becomes very, very irresistible. But you have to have a long view. It could take 100 years. How long do you think it took between the first organized effort uh, for the women's vote, let's say 1844 Seneca Falls, to 1918 and the right to vote? The people who were at Seneca Falls were already dead by the time they achieved their objective. They couldn't live that long. It's a very long, sometimes it can happen quickly, but I want to advise you. <laughs> Patience uh, is not contradictory to urgency. If you have a long view, you can be urgent all your life, but still a long view is a, is a, is a safe view. You get there, and eventually you get the change, the original change. You get the right to vote. By now, many people think the right to vote isn't enough. It's a trick. We're being deluded we're being misled. Howard Zinn, who's a mentor of mine on this stuff, if you read his book from this perspective, you'll see at every time the people's movement and the people's history of the United States succeeds in winning an objective, Howard Zinn will write that it was really a plot by the ruling class to end the movement through reforms. And I do not exaggerate. The conclusion I draw is that over several hundred years, all movements have ended in reforms, none in revolutions, not in this country. So if you take Howard Zinn's view, you'll be chronically depressed. <laughs> you'll, 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 you'll be always moved to the heroism of the people who are standing up. But you'll, you'll always know that in the end, they're going to be disappointed by what they win. Uh, 
And on the Machiavellian side, you know, they're disappointed too. The Tea Party is the classic example, or the Koch brothers are the classic example who, it's, they, 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 their view is free enterprise or death. They will not accept any reform. They will fight to the end, whatever, whatever it, may, it may take. So when you achieve the change, uh, there's disappointment on both sides. <coughs> but most people welcome the change because it means in their everyday life, which is where they come from. They don't come from meetings. They come from families. They come from houses. They live in neighborhoods. They go to work. If it means that everyday life has, has improved, they're happy. And as a result of the reform, they demobilize because they want to enjoy the benefit of the reform in everyday life. This really disappoints the organizers. We won, where'd they go? That's the life of an organizer, I'm afraid to tell you. Then the final battlefield is memory, which is actually, I don't know how to do this. Memory is the beginning and the end. We're now in a battlefield over the 60s, right? Um, and, and you can see the Occupy movement arises out of certain perceptions of the 60s. The University of California pepper, pepper sprays students out of certain memories of the 60s. Uh, certain activists try to emulate what they think happened in the 1960s. And it breaks three ways. There are people that want to preserve the legacy of reform for future generations. There are people that want to repress the memory so that you start with nothing in your consciousness, have no memory whatsoever. And then there's the kind of manipulators of memory or the politicians of memory who want to name things after famous dead radicals or Malcolm X has a postage stamp. I, I, I have a friend who's African-American who's running in Los Angeles for the, for the state assembly, and he proudly wears a lapel pin with the Malcolm X postage stamp on it because he's a black nationalist, and he regards that as a, some kind of achievement that the United States Postal Service would be forced to recognize <coughs> Malcolm X. I can't make up my own mind because he's a decent principled guy, but that, that, that's what I mean by the memory struggle. And last, you can look at it this way. This is the Machiavellian wheels of power. They go this way, right? And th this is the wheel of social movements and unrest. It goes up from the bottom up, from the top down. And this little weird space where they overlap is precisely where you sit tonight. This is called reform. This space has been fought for even though you can't feel it. It feels like air. There are forces over here who don't want this meeting to happen. I know they don't want me to even speak. They don't want you to come to this meeting. But they accept that free speech has been achieved to a considerable extent, and so the meeting will happen, right? But this meeting is not safe. The ability for us to share these ideas and arguments is considered subversive 
or the beginning of subversion, subversion by some people. Uh, and it's not protected by the First Amendment. It's protected by public opinion and the norms that are created by the resilient public opinion that has come down through the ages to tonight that protects our right to do this. So, so I, I think, if, if not uh, holy or sacred, maybe going too far, this, this is the space to occupy. It's not about a tent. It's about the occupation of the space created by our parents and grandparents that has made possible where we, where we have come to. If you don't occupy and use this free space for free speech and assembly and so on, uh, it will it will be it will shrink, it will close down. It's in the law of movements and Machiavellians. So I'm I'm asking you to be part of a movement as if your life depends on it and think like a Machiavellian in order to succeed. That's, that's as simple as that. That's what I have to say. I'm sorry it took so long. Thank you, Tom. Um, those of us in this occupied space... That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's, take let's take advantage of this occupied space this evening and to uh, ask questions and conversation. Uh, no, it's open. decision? Good question. What do you think? I don't... My mind has changed on that from decade to decade. Well, that's a slogan and would be a great platform. I think that, that's a good example of raising the issue properly. Um, instead of talking about economic democracy... Uh, just say some people think corporations are people. I think corporations employ people, but a corporation is not a person. And then you get into this amazing discussion of where the doctrine came from and how Romney thinks corporations are people. And you can ask candidates <laughs> where do they stand on uh, 
is, is, is the corporations are people, what are we? That would be a good question in a, in a meeting with the candidate. <laughs> Okay. But that's a good that's a good example. A question here. Could you comment on Southern Europe what's going through there? They look at the government corruption, borrowed all this money, and now it's on the backs of the people. Yeah, I think uh, there's going to be a, a crash in Europe, and it's <coughs> going to crash uh, our economy and crash Obama. Why you would therefore argue, as the Republicans do, that? You know the the way to deal with the economic crisis and unemployment is by cutting budgets and laying more people off is completely beyond me. It's like a religious view or a crackpot theory, but um, I'm more interested in why people move in that direction. One side of my family supported Joe McCarthy, right? Other side supported uh, liberal Democrats. So it's a it's a populist moment where people can go to the right. I think one reason that some people go to the right is they don't believe in the state, they don't believe anything, but they know that if their taxes are lowered, they'll have more money in their own pocket. And they're just like going to go for it individually because it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. Uh, other people feel that their taxes are not going for them anymore, they're going for others and they don't want their taxes to go for others, they want to keep them. Uh, and and um, it's close, it's kind of 50-50, don't you think? I, which way it goes? You could, you could uh, here's an example. Uh, I, I know the, the former um, Prime Minister of Greece, Papandreou, and uh, he's educated at Berkeley, and, and uh, good fellow. And so all of a sudden in the middle of the, the Greek meltdown, he says, right out of economic democracy, he says, we're going to have a referendum. Remember? We're going we're gonna to put the budget deal to a vote of the Greek people. And that was the end of him. He was thrown out of office by the invisible hand of someone in about 48 hours. I didn't know why he said it, whether it was tax. I don't know what he was doing. He didn't even get a good reaction from some people in his own party. But, but that's, that's exactly the issue. Do you believe if we're going to have an unaccountable, invisible investor class run our economy by remote control, should we vote over what they want to do to us? <laughs> I would say, why not? I mean, maybe people would vote for the cuts. But, but that seems to be the line. He was gone within 48 hours after, after he said that. How would uh, economic <coughs> democracy work in a global context like we have like you can impose economic democracy like in any specific relations, but like in a international market that, that is relatively <coughs> capitalist, how do you do that? Because if you do this one, like enact democratic methods in one country, they'll just move to another country. And like, right. we don't have, there's, there's, there's not a lot of, there are places which aren't democracies. <laughs> um, 
Well, you're either, you're either going to see the, 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 the counter-movement roll back the New Deal, <coughs> as they're trying to do in Wisconsin and Ohio with collective bargaining, or you're going to see the New Deal globalized by a global movement that sets wage and hour standards and union standards and environmental standards globally and enforceably. Sound utopian? Yeah, well, the first thing sound utopian, but those are really the choices. And then I have to say, um, you, you have to take it step by step. For example, something I know about um, from experience. The, the university uh, was rocked a few years ago by students who wanted to do something about sweatshops, right? The university uses its brand, contracts with people that use sweatshop labor, China in particular, uh, Pakistan, Costa Rica, Mexico, Honduras, Salvador, workers making pennies on the hour, make the t-shirts and the pom-poms that your students wear, right? And a big fight about it, and, and uh, I decided that you could legislate this city by city. I was out of office and I didn't have much power, but I did get Los Angeles and San Francisco to adopt similar ordinances. And, and uh, it stopped there because there was not enough capacity. The movement got bogged down in its own victory. But it, it is possible to have a, a standard of a living wage or a purchasing power standard based on research that adjusts for the different standard of living in markets and sets a non-poverty wage for anybody who is going to contract with the university or the city or the state or the United States using public money. The principle is very simple. Our taxes should not go for sweatshops, period, end of discussion. If it's too complicated, okay, well, that's too complicated, but we're not. You have to first say, no, we are not paying taxes for sweatshops. Then you have to have monitors, and they can't be private monitors hired by corporations to run around and peek in the back rooms of the factories. Then you have to um, you know, train your whole purchasing staff. The, the, the UC Irvine purchasing people are probably out of their minds on this question because what they do is they want to buy cheap sweatshirts and sell them to you. That's, that's what they do. And, and, and if you know industry, that, that's a big job. You've got to get the damn things sewn, made, you know, not have the factory burned down, get them here, brand, sell them, make money, explain to the university that you made money. Now somebody comes along and says, and by the way, no discrimination against women, no discrimination against pregnant workers, and by the way, we want a, li a living wage internationally enforced. And by the way, we, we want you to fund monitors who go out. And by the way, we want you to negotiate these contracts and cut these suppliers off if they use sweat labor. I have to tell you, it is doable. But there would have to be, it's very doable. I've seen it done. It can be done. But it takes a movement capacity that we don't quite have, and it takes 
an institutional capacity and will that's not there. The university is not in the business of enforcing sweat-free laws, so pushing them is very, very hard. But you, you can see that progress could be made towards an international labor standard that's enforceable. Just like the UN has treaties that are enforceable. If you can, if you can lock up a dictator in the International Criminal Court, why, why can't you uh, put a sweatshop magnate out of business? You could, but we don't, because we don't believe strongly enough that we should have a New Deal international economy. Well, by, by that argument, you couldn't intervene on human rights violations or slave labor or rape and torture or massacres you, because you'd be infringing on sovereignty. We already uh, claim a right to protect, that's the official name of the doctrine, to justify bombing Libya. But we don't claim in law a right to protect people from sweatshop exploitation. We could. Um, Take the Pentagon. The Pentagon and the federal government alone probably hire more sweatshop labor than any of us can even wrap our minds around. Why couldn't there be an executive order that you're simply not going to um, contract or subcontract with anybody for military uniforms that are, are, are made with sweatshop labor? Defined this. It's all, all the legal ter terms have been defined in, in law. We know what the we know how to write the law, but, you know, I just bet the Pentagon wouldn't be too thrilled about having to outfit their soldiers with, you know, good uniforms made with... Uh, okay, we have a question here. Labor, yeah. Um, um, wondered if you could comment. I'm, I'm a born Californian boy, a product of the UC system. And are you proud of it? I'm very proud of it, and it kills me to see the state in the shape and the UC system and the state it is. Um, but I also believe very strongly, because um, I think history bears it out, that of all the states in the nation, California has proven its resiliency. Um, and, and I think it, it can be, some people have commented about its ability to help lead the nation out of its, out of its problems. Huh. Given all of that, I wonder what, you might, what your observations are about California's state um, the economy um, and its ability to um, exhibit resiliency, what has to be done in order for it to lead uh, itself first, and then hopefully, by example, the rest of the country in terms of dealing with, with some of the major issues that we're facing as a country. That's a, that's a model that you and I both were raised on in the 80s. I don't know if it's true anymore, um, but... Um, Um, certainly, um, Jerry Brown, um, the old Jerry Brown, it, it should come back. Uh, the new Jerry Brown, I don't quite understand. He's so obsessed with cutting the budget um, that even when he realizes that the Republicans are never, ever going to give him a deal, and that as long as we're in a recession, he's going to have to cut the budget every year. And the budget cuts are going to come at the expense of the students and the poor. 
He does it anyway. Um, if, if I were a politician, I would run for <coughs> governor on a program of um, reversing all the tuition increases at UC, firing all the regents, replacing them with people who are educators, and, and take it, because I think there's a constituency. There are hundreds of thousands of students in community colleges, CSU, uh, UC. They all have parents, brothers, sisters, grandparents. Uh, there's an emergent constituency. Are you ready for another run? No. <laughs> no, there's an emergency constituency of uh, Latinos and immigrants who want in. They don't understand why the doors are closing and it's getting <coughs> more expensive just when they arrive. It's a combustible issue that could be turned into a majority issue real easily, I think. And I, I, you can't really say, well, they don't, why don't they do it? Well, they don't do it because they're big campaign contributors won't let them. The university's not a big campaign contributor. It's just, it's, it's something about the state of our politics right now. Somebody's going to come along and see what I'm talking about. Uh, some, uh, a, a wild card would be Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom, for instance. He doesn't have anything to do because he's Lieutenant Governor. Uh, his one job is to be a regent. And, you know, he goes to the regents' meetings, and because there's nothing at stake for him, he always votes with the students. <laughs> and, 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 and if he thinks it through, this is a very popular position to take. And there's no downside. All he would have to do is, to get into a downside, he'd have to figure out how he would subsidize the, the tuition reduction. And then he would campaign on that. He would say, Prop 13 is good for homeowners, but it shouldn't, it shouldn't be a, a tax break for the owners of large commercial properties in every city that I drive through every day. We could save billions and billions of dollars and transfer it to the university or to housing or so on. And up or down, bring it to a vote. You don't, you don't get there by, by not voting, and he, he might lose, but, but if, you, if you said you're going to reform Prop 13 <coughs> and a few other items in the tax code in order to make a college education as tuition-free as possible for every student in California, and you were going to reduce the prison population with due respect for safety as prisoners are released and transfer that money up or down? What's the other side going to say? You know, they're going to come out for the 1%. We, the 1%, want tuitions to rise, and we want as many people as possible to be in prison. That's our program. That's a program for people that are, go are leaving this life and want to take, take their stuff with them and lock up everybody who's a threat. At some point, the demographics are in favor of the change. But you can't make the demographics <coughs> change without leadership willing to campaign on it and convince people that you know what you're talking about. You do have a plan. Uh, you will carry it out. Uh, and it, 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 I don't, does anyone understand? I don't understand why no politicians, politicians being what they are, why wouldn't any politician 
jump at this opportunity for glory and for success. <laughs> I, I don't know what the uh, what they're waiting for. Yeah. How does the narrative of American individualism come into that, though? The American dream, we vote against our own self-interest because someday we're going to be that millionaire. That's what I see. People being like, they should get theirs, and someday I'm going to get mine. You're right. We need 51%. <laughs> All this 1%, 99 no. The game is about 51% in an election. You, and the way you get there is you say, what is our goal and what is our capacity to get there? And there is the capacity to get 51% for what I'm talking about. You could lose for the reasons that you give. Uh, but in this climate, how many people are expecting to realize the American dream individually? You don't even have to go after that. Look at the undocumented undergraduates. They're the bravest people in, that, that I've seen in decades. And they call themselves dreamers. That, you know, they're co-opting the concept of a dream. So you don't have to go against the idea of a dream. That's a tactical decision. Nobody ever asks them, what exactly is, <laughs> is your dream? Uh, that would be an interesting question for them to answer. But I, I, I think their, their cause is very popular with Californians. Uh, and I still, I still think, um, like an Antonio Viragosa could make this move. Gavin Newsom could make this move. They have nothing to lose. Um, but to be to the right of Jerry Brown, that's not an option. To, to sit in the legislature and wait for Jerry Brown to cut the budget further, and then go face, then go face your constituents, is that an option? Um, somebody has to do it. Otherwise, I don't think it will happen. It'll be a movement, a, way, a, a wave of uh, activism, but no culmination, no, no point where you could say that's our goal and we've succeeded or not. By the way, one other thing I should just note in passing, that, that what's missing in this model from my experience is is never discussed very much in sociology or, or political science or urban studies, and that's assassinations. Uh, my view of the 60s is that we would have achieved most of our dreams except for the assassinations. Without getting into was there a conspiracy and if so, by who, just the, the killing of leadership uh, has an absolutely devastating effect on social movements. And the reason we don't think like this is because social movements are so bottom-up and so anti-leader and so, quote, horizontal, they don't really think very much about the possible role that, a, say, a president of the United States might play at a key moment in history, as Lincoln did, or Roosevelt did, or Kennedy tried to. Um, all of them Machiavellians, but all of them played key roles. So if you take out John Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Medgar Evers, the list of murders in the, in the middle and late 60s is staggering, it's traumatic. And, and I think without the murders, we would have succeeded in our project <coughs>
which was to build a majority movement for participatory democracy and elect a president and a Congress on that basis. Then we would have learned whether politics really can achieve what you're hoping for <coughs> or whether there's some higher level of power that would, would be revealed through our experience. So I, I, I think the 60s were stolen. And I think the uh, possibility of an environmental presidency was stolen in 1990 when Gore was defeated by Bush by the Supreme Court. So you, ne you need to factor that in. If you're anti-leadership, I would beg you to rethink it carefully and factor in how our history is quite the opposite of the dreamy um, story of um, American democracy being a, a, a gift to the world. We have had so many people assassinated and elections stolen that we'll never know what might have happened. And no wonder people become anarchist or anti-everything, uh, because who wants to invest any belief in a, a system where it seems over and over that the people you believe in are killed, or, or they, they have their success stolen from them. That's the story of the past. That's not the story of Iran. That's the story of, of, of America. And, and I don't have a formula for that, except I, I pray to God that Barack Obama has the best security ever devised uh, by any single uh, national leader. In the back, the tone. I'm curious how modern media and technology plays into this framework. Do you see it as a strength of the movement side or a popularity side, or is it sort of balanced out? More balanced out, but it's a big difference from the 60s because I've gone over some of our meeting notes, and there are, you, know, you type up your, your minutes on a gestetner. You even know what a gestetner is. <laughs> Raise your hand if you know. You have to be 88 or over in, in age to know what a gestetner is. And, or we would send each other handwritten letters about some meeting that was coming up in Washington, and then we would drive there. Uh, and yet, we, it, we built a bigger movement than anybody can imagine. The internet opens up the possibility of participatory democracy so <laughs> wide open. Uh, it's just unbelievable compared to the past. Um, and, and on the other side, the, the manipulative power of the state is, it is exponentially bigger than I think it was before. Um, and I, uh, so I think it balances out maybe. I don't know <coughs> where the advantage lies. You know, it's a small pool. <laughs> 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 but, 
But, but unless you overturn Citizen United and then go after the whole thing, public financing, disclosure, all you can do now is get a rich person or a movement that ignores the candidates and just in, imposes a demand and you know see what happens. Um, uh, and and <coughs> I don't see I don't see any change. In fact, Obama's made it more problematic because he's proven that that he can raise as much money as the, he scares the billionaires out of running against him because you know he's gonna he's gonna he's gonna raise and spend a billion dollars. Unbelievable. But but I, I do think what you should do it. You have a law school here, right? Run by a very fine dean. Uh, should chat with him and say, look, here's what we need from the law school. Every law student should have a mandatory course in campaign finance, and in the First Amendment, and the Fourteenth Amendment, and it should be about whether <coughs> corporations are persons and whether money has free speech rights, and what will it take strategically to overturn those doctrines in, in the, the higher courts. Uh, that's as big a cause as ending segregation or, 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 or uh, breaking discrimination in the schools, and it can be done. Uh, uh, but, you, but, but the lawyers have to play a role, just as they did in, in uh, past struggles. And I, I'm always amazed that people think, well, it's inevitable, but nothing is inevitable. Uh, you just need to have classes where you Somebody in the class is, becomes on fire to strike down corporate personhood or strike down big money if it takes the rest of their life. And they'll find ways to do it. And there are people here uh, who can teach that course, and there are students who get on fire. They will, yeah. And if you do it in enough places, sooner or later, see, all it takes is if you want to do a judge. They come before the U.S. Senate, as you know, the Judiciary Committee, and the staff types out questions for the, the, the mouthpiece, the senator, to ask the witness. And they, they never ask, without going into your detail, could you please share with the committee how you feel about whether corporations are persons? And I have a second question. Do you feel that the First Amendment was written to apply to the right of corporations to spend as much money as possible on propaganda? Yes or no? Uh, and they, they wouldn't be able to, they, their arguments are so weak by now, I think you'd start to build up momentum to get a case uh, uh, that reverses Buckley Viejo and uh, that reverses Citizen United. And it could start in the Irvine Law School. It, 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 these things take a while, as I've said many times tonight. 80 years, I got time. Whatever, <laughs> whatever, whatever it takes. You're gonna, just remember, my adversary, you're going to suffer too. It takes 80 years. You're going to have a lot of grief. Your kids are going to be coming after you. It's going to be a big problem for you. I'm happy to fight as long as it takes. That usually brings brings them to some some attention. Anything else? Well, uh, thank you, uh, Tom.
I know that you're um, starving undergraduates. I mean, starving students. I can't give you these books for free, but I can. I like to leave my books behind, so I'll take like 90% off the cost. And if you want to stay more in contact, I don't know how much your email addresses change as you go through these institutions. Uh, I would really love you to sign uh, my email list. I have 50,000 people in 50 cities on a list that receives a bulletin, and then I have office hours and communicate with people. And they're in key cities where they're the key activists. I have a, a lot of 90-year-olds in, in the Irvine and Laguna area. Um, <laughs> who have, have all the time in the world to read the New York Times and argue and then decide who to attack. Um, but uh, it's, it's, it, would, it would be great to have uh, you sign. So if you're, wel you're, you're welcome to do that if you want to come up. Well, one more thing. My, my students, you need to sign in, please. It's urgent, mandatory. Thank you. Thank you.